Hello, and welcome to the Accelerated Culture Podcast, a sonic journey through the vibrant and revolutionary sounds of the 1980s and 1990s. In this podcast, my co-host Rob and I will dive deep into the era of new wave and alternative music, exploring the infectious beats, introspective lyrics, and groundbreaking experimentation that defined a generation and left an indelible mark on the music landscape. Join us as we unravel the stories behind the music that shaped an era. Welcome to another episode of the Accelerated Culture Podcast. I'm Lori. And contrary to belief, I am still Rob. How's it going? It is going well. How are you today? I am doing good. I am excited for this episode. This is going to be an interesting one for me, I think. I think we've reversed places from two episodes ago. Yes, I think so. So, Rob, I kind of pulled rank on you, uh, being that I am the senior host, and then also because this is my birthday. So, you were kind enough to let me do Nothing Shocking by Jane's Addiction as our episode topic today. Seemed like a good birthday gift. Well, thank you. I'm cheap and easy. Gotta let so, it go. <laughs> yeah, and, and I understand that this was an album that maybe you were not as familiar with, but for me, this was like a, a pivotal part of my teen years was this specific album. I don't think I had ever actually sat down and listened to this whole album until you decided to do it. I really don't think so. Okay. I didn't I didn't really get into Jane's until I heard Stop from uh, Ritual later on in 90. Okay. And that's actually that that's a good album too. Well, I guess we should uh I guess we should talk a little bit about the background of the album here. Oh, so, wow. this came Yeah, out... I think we should. Good. And God. You think you should? Okay. All right. So, this came out in 88. And Jane's Addiction was founded by a guy named Perry Bernstein, who took the stage name Perry Farrell, which is supposed to be a play on words, peripheral. Ooh. Well, since I never caught it, I don't think he did very well. And his friend Eric Avery. Previously, Perry had been in a band based in Los Angeles called Psycom. And when that band broke up, he and his friend Eric Avery bonded over their love of bands like Joy Division house and Love and Rockets, and they decided to start a band together. I, I like kind of like how this band was formed according to the research I did, because it was like, Perry was looking for a replacement bassist for Psycom, and right. he got recommended to Eric Avery. Then they were looking for a drummer, and Eric Avery recommended Perkins. Correct, And then correct. Perkins was like, hey, I got a friend Dave Navarro. <laughs> That's, no, that's exactly right. I mean, this really was kind of, you know, hey, I got a friend who's got a friend. They actually had an, another drummer, but that drummer had just kind of stopped showing up. So Perry and Eric invited Stephen Perkins to audition. It was actually Eric's sister who recommended Stephen Perkins. And supposedly Stephen showed up with his 18-piece drum kit. And after one song jamming with the band, he was in. Perry had said... We were from completely different worlds, but I felt this kid could just rock the shit out of us. 
I think having an 18 piece drum set might be kind of a <laughs> signal in that direction. <laughs> right. Well, so he came from like a, a very heavy metal background. He was in a band that was playing like Iron Maiden covers. So Steven then brought his friend Dave Navarro, the guitarist, who obtained a demo tape of the band's songs, learned them pretty much overnight, and just uh, completely nailed it. Played once with the band. He brought that kind of heavy metal edge that I think they were missing. I mean, Dave is very much a, a heavy metal guitarist. Uh, he's into, like, Metallica. And so we had kind of an interesting meeting of different backgrounds and different influences. Steve and Dave that are really kind of these heavy metal teens. We've got Eric Avery, whose biggest influence is probably Peter Hook from Joy Division. And we're actually going to see kind of how that influence comes out in some of the music. So these guys were in their like late teens when the band started. And then there's Perry, who's like a few years older than everybody else. I mean, at the time the band started, I think he was like 25 or 26. Does not sound like a huge age difference, but for a bunch of teenagers, then Perry kind of became this, I guess, pseudo father figure. The band really kind of was the culmination of his vision, not just so much musically. He was very much into visual art as well. And like a lot of that kind of came out in some of the shows the cover artwork for the album, which we're going to talk about. So it really kind of was an interesting amalgamation. In 1987, they put out a live album called Jane's Addiction on an indie label called Triple X Records. And based on not only the strength of that album, but also their success at local clubs in L.A., specifically a club called Scream, where they kind of had a not a formal residency, but they played there so often that it kind of became their place. So based on the success of their performance in the clubs and also this album, Warner Brothers signed them to a record deal. And that leads us to nothing shocking. The record deal that they signed actually was very impressive because in my research, I found that Warner Brothers, it was the highest advance they'd ever paid to a band at that time. And it was somewhere between a quarter million and $300,000. To put that in perspective, I put that number in an inflation calculator. That is okay. like giving a band over three quarters of a million dollars today. Wow. And I mean, and th these were just like some indie kids from L.A. And it was really kind of an interesting scene that was going on in L.A. at the time. I think the Red Hot Chili Peppers were also starting to kind of pick up some momentum. But most of what was going on specifically in L.A. was like Guns N' Roses. L.A. Guns, Motley Crue. Yes. So this was really very different than what was going on uh, in the music scene in 87, 88, specifically in Southern California. All the rock with none of the glam. Interestingly enough, this will come out later, I think. Axl Rose tried to recruit Dave Navarro when Izzy left Guns N' Roses. He's a, he's, he's a damn, damn good uh, guitarist. I think Dave's talent has been unfortunately somewhat covered by his weirdness over the years. His weirdness? Have you seen some of the stuff he and Carmen Electra used to like send and say to each other? I, mean, I, I was going to say, is that like a kind way of saying drug addiction? I mean... <laughs> 
Mm. But but no, I, I, I can't yes. say I can't say that I I can't say that I have. No. I think one of the things we have to mention about the recording of this album that it's to me is one of the most important facts of it is the royalty situation that almost didn't even make this album happen. Yeah. During yeah. the negotiations, Farrell, who, by the way, I will point out, according to the liner notes, does not play a single instrument on this album. He is a vocalist only. Demanded 50% for writing lyrics. And then over the remaining 50% wanted another quarter of that, another 12.5% for whatever music he contributed. This did not go over well for some reason with the other three guys in the band. <laughs> no, it really did. He, he really did kind of, not at first, but I think about midway through the recording of this, I think, yeah, he really did kind of get a little bit of an ego there. And, you know, again, but when they were recording this, so he would have been 88, he would have been 28, and uh, Dave and Steven would have been 21. And again, huge age difference. Harry, I think, I think he's always kind of envisioned himself as kind of like the ringmaster, you know what I mean? I mean, when they would put on these live shows, he would have all kinds of like uh, side stage acts and, and visual artists. And I mean, it ended up being, I think, more than just the music as far as he was concerned and maybe that's why he felt like he was entitled to more but yeah um the uh, the album almost almost didn't end up getting finished so yeah Warner Brothers had to call an emergency meeting on this and in the end he did get the 62.5 percent he wanted yeah but things were never the same again after that did he deserve it you can decide over the next 11 tracks nice all right, well, do you want to introduce the first track, then? I sure will. I will point out, by the way, to everyone that, once again, as I mentioned earlier, I was pretty much a neophyte to this album, so you're getting somebody who pretty much was listening to it for the first time over the last couple of weeks versus somebody who's been listening to it for a while. We'll just leave it at a while. We start off the album with a track titled Up the Beach. like this one i think this is a nice mellow groovy way to start the album the first time we listened to this when we were listening over the internet i the when the build starts up in this song i kept waiting for it to just blow up and then it just it never quite got there that's not a complaint it just kind of surprised me because it just felt like it was building to something huge and then it just kind of leveled off and stayed there it was a little bit of a shock 
but I do like the track. I wish more bands would do mostly instrumental stuff like this. I wish more bands would investigate the instrumental side of their consciences because it's a nice way to showcase the musicians rather than just the front man or front woman of any band. Yeah, I think the only lyric to this song is the word home. Here we go now. Home, home, home. There you go. Do you owe Perry royalties for that? Uh oh, I hope we don't hope we don't get sued. Yeah. Yeah, he can get sixty two point five percent of my ad. No, wait, no, he can't. No, 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 no. He can't have any of it. No. Change my mind. But he can have sixty two point five percent of the nothing that I'm currently carrying, so he's welcome to it. There you go. You know, when this album came out, they got a lot of comparisons to Led Zeppelin. And, okay, first of all, I'm already on the record as stating I hate Led Zeppelin. Hate, hate, hate Led Zeppelin. Can't stand them. But I do see where they're getting the comparisons. I, it, it's in the musicianship. It's in the, it's in the sound. And I think even in this one, uh, the, the jangly guitars in this one just really kind of... No... No, it's. I think it's less. It's less the Led Zeppelin style than it is like the sonic, yes, assault that lands that Led Zeppelin once was. Yes, although uh, you've already said that this song really wasn't an assault. <laughs> no, it, I said I said but... it didn't build to where I thought it was going to, but it it's definitely a a big track. There's no question about that. It's a big track. It's just not as big as say what follows it. So right, right. So what follows it is the next track. This is called Ocean Sides. First of all, this has a gorgeous intro. I absolutely love the intro into this. If I had to pick one person from this band who was really at the heart of it in my ears and eyes, it would be Eric Avery. His baseline drives everything on this album. I was fascinated. My original interpretation of it was that it was just somebody who was like, I wish I was ocean sized. Then people couldn't push me around and tell me what to do. But apparently this was written about being homeless. Yeah. And I, now I get that too. I wish just leave me alone. Quit shuffling me around. I wish you could just leave me in one place and leave me alone. Wow. Okay. Um, Did I accidentally go deep again? Now I have to figure out what I want to add to that. Something really. I was going to sure. talk about. I was going to talk about that the, the homeless thing, but uh, back to Eric Avery's bass for a second, though. And oh, please. It's going to come up in a few of the songs. 
Uh, so he has said that one of his biggest influences, as I mentioned, was Peter Hook. One of the things that I think Joy Division and then later New Order were really notable for was the bass becoming a lead instrument as opposed to just a tool of the rhythm section. And I think that Eric Avery took that concept and ran with it. And I think this one and then a few of the other ones that we're going to listen to, I think the bass really carries the melody, which is very unusual. Not a lot of bands pull that off successfully. The only other one I can even think of offhand is Level 42 with Mark King as the bassist and also the lead singer just plays that thing like it's a guitar, just thumps away on it. Any other thoughts about Oceanside? I do like this last verse, actually. Some people tell me home is in the sky and the sky lives a spy. I want to be more like the ocean. No talking, man. All action. I like that because what's in the sky? You don't know. Maybe it's there. Maybe it's not. You know the ocean's there and you know what it can do. Okay. You're you're, you're duly impressed, I can tell. <laughs> um, <laughs> I got nothing, man. I got nothing. Hey, maybe he can get 62.5% of it. Hey, all right. All right, your next song is yours. This next song, track three, this one, this one's kind of fun. I was actually very interested in the origins of this, so I hope you guys like it too. It's called Had a Dad. Technically, we've all had a dad, right? I mean, you came from somewhere. <laughs> Do you know anything about the background behind this one? A little bit, yeah. Apparently, this was a concept given to Perry by Eric Avery when Eric found out that the person he thought was his biological father was actually not his biological father. And the thing that's really interesting to me about that is there's a book called Horrors. It's an oral history of Jane's addiction. And that's mentioned in that book, but I couldn't find anything else about that, which kind of surprised me a little bit because IMDB lists Eric Avery's father is the actor Brian Avery, who was in The Graduate. Oh, he was the guy that Dustin Hoffman kept Catherine Ross from marrying. Uh-huh. I remember that now. It's been a while. But that must have been the person that he thought was his biological father and wasn't because they had the same last name, I'm guessing. That makes sense to me. But but they don't go in any more detail about that anywhere. It's like, I want to know more. I want, you know what? I want Eric Avery to do, do like a memoir or something. I want, I want to know more about this. But anyway... I absolutely love the lyrics to this song. You know, Perry's lyrics can be very hit or miss. 
some of the songs, it's just like, dude, what are you on about, right? But this one I think is absolutely brilliant. You know, if you see my dad, tell him my brothers have all gone mad. They're beating on each other. That's that's very relatable. I totally get that. So now that's this line confused. Uh, that whole verse confused me a little bit. Is it basically like without his influence, like all the others have lost their way and their path or something? Or you know, I suppose it could be interpreted either way, couldn't it? It could be, you know, when when the dad left, then you know, kind of became chaos and anarchy. With or, Perry, this could be about growing corn for all you know, so. Well, I mean, but then the other part of that is, you know, it, it sounds like the father was kind of checked out anyway. So maybe, maybe that's why he left. You know, I mean, who can say, right? But there, there's this one part where, and, and when you and I were listening to this, I remember I specifically mentioned this line, got that funny feeling, God is dead there's like a line in fight club where, where brad pitt saying something like you know if our father's left what does that tell you about god right so i mean there, there's something going on here on a little bit of a higher level no oh i don't know i haven't seen fight club in about 20 years it <laughs> happens I, I will take your word for it yeah it's just been a okay. while Okay. All right. Now, the one thing interesting about that, we, the God is dead lyric in the lyric sheet for the album, God is dead is omitted from the lyrics. It's not there. It just says, got that funny feeling. He's not there at all. Just totally skips over that line. And it's interesting too, because the lyric sheet in the album, they have no problem with obscenity. No, I elsewhere in here, there's all sorts of wonderful words. You don't want your children to hear, but right. But that's the one they chose to leave Yeah, out. God is dead is the one, that, you know. I wonder. I don't know. Did Nietzsche want money or something? Or 62.5%. <laughs> so um, there's like a, boy, like a three or four song segment. The, the, the sequencing of these songs is just brilliant. And I think he had a dad going into the next one that we're going to listen to. And then the one after that, I mean, whoever sequenced this is like a genius. It just, it, it flows together so nicely. Would you um, like to bring else? us in? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I'm going to ask if there's anything else about had a dad before I skip ahead. Other than the fact that I knew who my biological father was, I relate to this because my dad was not there, man. So... So, yeah, it, it doesn't sting, but it's relatable, if nothing else. So, yeah, I do like this track overall. I think it's fun. I, I'm glad I didn't have any brothers to go beat the crap out of each other. But, hey, you can't have it all. Well, and, you know, you could probably take this again to that higher level. If the father figure is a metaphor for God, then the brothers beating on each other. Well, I mean, well, look at all the shit that's happening in the world today, right? I don't want to anymore. Okay. All right. All right. I don't want to look at it anymore. All right. Well, then let's move on to the next track, which is called Ted Just Admit It. Cameras got them in the chairs. Cameras got them 
All right. So this is, I think, maybe one of the better known songs off the album. Uh, although our listeners wouldn't have heard it because of the way I had to edit this. There's uh, an introduction in this song that's actually a recording of Ted Bundy. And fitting with the title, he's denying everything. Yeah, he's saying there's going to be people turning up in canyons. There are going to be people being shot in Salt Lake City. Yeah. This is a really interesting song. Lyrically, you know, the theme is just kind of, I think, the desensitization to violence. That that's just like all around us, you know. I mean, the news is just another show with sex and violence, and every half an hour, someone's captured and the cop moves them along. Right? Everything is just kind of packaged into these little thirty-minute or sixty-minute episodes for entertainment value, and of course, then the line "nothing shocking," right, which is the title of the album. The repetition of the phrase sex is violent in this song over and over again. I, I can't help but think that that is a direct shot of the fact that we will watch all sorts of violence on the news. But, you know, heaven forbid a nipple get loose on TV. We can't have that. That that is worse than violence. That is violent to America for some reason. I don't for for people who are so afraid of sex we certainly seem to have a lot of it in this world so <laughs> the other thing that i found was interesting that i didn't realize until very recently is dave navarro's mother connie was murdered when dave was 15 uh, it was like a domestic violence situation that had to be really really hard on him for a number of reasons, but one of them that's just got to totally do the guy's head in is the fact that he was supposed to have been with his mother at the time that this happened. And I'm sure that he's probably gone over in his head a million times, you know, I should have been there, I could have protected her. Although it's just as likely that he probably would have been killed too. And I think actually his aunt may also have been murdered too, if memory serves. So, I mean, that's just got to do the kid's head in so bad. And knowing that, I guess I can understand a little bit better how he spiraled into the drug abuse. You know what I mean? You have to wonder, was this song cathartic or troubling for him to some degree? All I know is this is where some of Perry's word choices get really strange to me. I am the killer of people. You look like a meatball. What? <laughs> I get it. And yet at the same time, I'm like, meatball? <laughs> you know. And of course, this song was used in the soundtrack of my second favorite movie of all time. You got nothing? No. <laughs> Natural Born Killers. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, it was included as like a, a medley. It wasn't completely just that song wait a minute didn't Reznor remix that for mm -hmm. he okay did. he did yeah I haven't listened to that in a while either I used to have that soundtrack in my car all the time too ah okay all right and that's a long song too that's like seven minutes and 23 seconds oh but you know what we do again have to mention Eric's bass line on this song it's weird because the song itself is very jarring but that bass line is just so smooth and so sensual 
and it's like a, a weird juxtaposition, you know? Under chaos lies order. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. But yeah, no, that, that, that baseline is just so fucking gorgeous, man. I don't think there's a baseline on this album that's bad, honestly. No, like I but said, I think this is my favorite, though. Well, well, we'll get to my favorite later, but we'll, this time I won't blow it and we'll save our favorite tracks for the end of the show. All right, all right. Uh, what's the next song? The next song is something I think all of us have done at some point or another because it's the one place where there are so few distractions. Track five is Standing in the Shower, Thinking. Okay, I want to know what Perry's doing in the the shower that he he can't manage to not piss on himself. That's what I want to know first off. Well, you know, in an interview, Madonna (laughs) had said she pees on her own feet in the shower to avoid athlete's foot. (laughs) Madonna's doing it. I don't know. I don't know why I found that so funny. Oh, God. Oh, look. Just look, as a man who's been in the shower and, you know, who is certainly, you know, urinated in the shower, I didn't just think, what is Perry doing in there? He's doing more than thinking. That, that what he's thinking about, though, is really kind of, I'm not, I don't want to say necessarily disturbing, but standing in the shower thinking, is my woman afraid of me? She's seen how far I've twisted. It's just because I can trust her. I don't know. It, it, uh, she she let me twist her good. It's like, hmm, what is uh, what is going on here? Uh, so he had a girlfriend named Casey. Cassie, I was it Cassie or Casey? Casey and Nicoli. Nicoli, I remember. Yeah. I, I I mean, those two were were like joined at the hip. And she was involved in just about every aspect of his art. I don't think that Jane's addiction would have happened without her because she she supported his vision so much. The irony of you saying they were joined at the hip and considering she was the model for the album cover is actually pretty amusing mm. if you want to get right oh, down to oh, it. Well, you know what? And we need to talk about that too. We need to talk about the album cover. So hold that thought. Um but then, then there was uh, later on after this album, when they got to uh, Ritual de lo Habitual, 
there was like a a threesome type situation with her and Perry and another gal. I can't pronounce her name. It begins with an X. I mean, she was just very open and accommodating, Casey was, to whatever kind of situation Perry wanted. I, I bet that that second verse is probably about her. The one verse I actually connect with, and I halfway wonder if this is about somebody specific. Now, I know this was based on a poem that Perry wrote, I think, like back in 86 or something like that. But okay. it's the verse that says, standing in the shower thinking about a man I know don't like me. He don't like the place I'm headed, same place he's headed. I know he'd beat me to it if he could, but he won't do it. I really wonder if that's about a rival in the music scene who he was kind of having some little competition with and he was like, I'm going to be successful before this chump ever will. Interesting. And then he pees on himself. So There you go. There you go. All right. So album cover. Yes. The album cover that was banned by a number of chains, wasn't it? Nine of 11. <laughs> Nine of 11 of the major music chains of the time. And, and Perry didn't give a fuck. You know, as far as he's concerned, you know, the saying, all publicity is good publicity. I'm sure that the fact that that album cover got banned, I'm just as far as he was concerned, added to the the appeal. He cast a plaster mask of his girlfriend's face. He said he had some kind of dream about conjoined twins. So he used this plaster mask and created not one but two, you know, figures of her seated side by side. They're on a weird kind of custom-made rocking chair, but it, it doesn't, like, rock back and forth. It rocks side to side, which is, like, really kind of strange looking. And yeah, course, he, had, he had had that specially made just for the sculpture. Well, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I, I, well, everything that that they put on their album covers was always something that was custom made, and uh, and then of course you know set, set the set the two girls here on fire, and there you go. The record labels can't handle boobs, so or not the record labels, the retailers they couldn't handle the boobs. If you go back to the last song, apparently nobody in America can handle boobs because sex is violent. <laughs> You had a misheard lyric in this for a while. I oh, I did, I did. Yeah, um, the uh, <laughs> you had to, you had to bring that up. Yeah, no, I was um, I was certain that it was the water is so fucking hot. I was certain that that was the lyric. And then when you pulled out your insert that had the lyrics in it, it was the water is so piping hot. Now. Is that actually what Perry's singing, or is he singing fucking hot? I would not put it past him. I, I read the lyric sheets, and then I listen to the song, and I'm I'm still not 100% sure he's not slipping it in there. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a, you know, this is a fun song, and there's like that kind of breakdown in the, in the middle eight. It's fun. I don't know. It's, it, it's hard, hard to listen to this and not smile. This is one of those places where the lyrics don't necessarily reach me, but as with almost every song on this album, the music is so good. Yes. That it carries it. I The one thing I absolutely love about this album is the band behind Perry Farrell. They are fantastic. They are three absolutely excellent musicians. They really are. So now we flip over the cassette. 
Yeah, I don't know if this. I don't know if this got a vinyl. Well, no, it did get a limited vinyl release because the one bonus track that you got on cassette and CD is not there. So, yes. So we'll, yeah. So we're flipping over to the cassette because we have a bonus track. Yeah. And I mean, this is I would have listened to this on cassette in '88. This whole album, to me, it really brings me back to a very specific place in time, but especially this next song which is called Summertime Rolls. Oh my God, where to start with this one, Rob? So apparently this is once again, Eric Avery at work way back in 86 and giving lyrical ideas to Perry to fill in the blanks. I I don't even know where to begin on this one either because it is just absolutely stunningly beautiful. It is the perfect centerpiece to this album. Lyrically, this is so beautiful. I don't know where to start with this one. This is where all of Perry's strange vocabulary choices actually work in the most perfect way. There's not a thing in this song that I can't visualize listening to the lyrics. This, this is one of my favorite pieces. I'm a girl whose fingernails are made of a mother's pearl, yellow buttercup, helicopters, orange butter cat chasing after the crazy bee. You can see this like it's a painting in front of you. And how about that line? Her nose is painted pepper sunlight. God, I love that. That That yeah. is the best description of freckles I've ever heard in my entire life. God, this is just such a gorgeous song. And I think I said when you and I were listening to this, I mean, this is like memories of sitting on a, a picnic blanket by a riverside just kind of a lazy summer day just oh so oh i don't i don't know the, the song just makes me all you know warm and fuzzy <laughs> and it hits right off the bat fell into a sea of grass and disappeared among the shady blades i love that that is a perfect description yeah. kid just we'll go roll around in the grass we don't care this is what we do for fun don't judge us and as we've said about 9 million times already in this show, the bass line on this song is absolutely gorgeous. It just trips along like a slow summer day. It's perfect. And then I love how it, it really kind of climaxes and builds and then it kind of ends on a very mellow note again, the way it came in, you know, goes full circle. I I can only say it's 
gorgeous so many ways and i i need a thesaurus pretty soon here because i'm running out of ways to say it yeah well good yeah you know what i'm glad that you found something on this album that you could latch on to there i will be honest with you this is not what i was expecting there are several really solid songs on this album and while i still don't find it fully accessible i i made a mistake not giving it a chance before so i will admit that much all right that was another long song too that was like six six minutes 18 seconds that is absolutely correct it doesn't feel that long does it no no it's just it again it's like a summer day you don't think you're spending that many hours doing it and then the next thing you know it's over oh i like that but anyway yeah i think what we're getting at is most of these songs weren't formatted for radio play but this this could have easily gotten radio play on any station anywhere really was that runtime i think so yeah well maybe not with the runtime but well at that point like aor stations were not really adhering to that you know three minutes and out thing anymore because they were losing listeners who wanted to hear some of the longer tracks and so yeah a six minute song on the radio i mean if you can play Stairway to Heaven, you can play this. Okay, valid point. And, you know, I'm trying to remember exactly how this first came to my attention because it wasn't being played on MTV. It definitely wasn't being played on the radio, at least down here in Chicago. I think that I probably discovered this through through a guy that I was in high school with. This was like his favorite band. And so, you know, I had to check it out. I think other people are how we discover most of the music that we really love in the long run. That's probably true. Or at least the ones that maybe not, you know, the radio is responsible for the stuff everybody's heard of, but those little niche bands that you love, those are your friends. I think for me, honestly, most of the little niche bands were like MTV, but not mainstream MTV. It would be like, you know, um, like 120 minutes postmodern not so much 120 minutes the stuff that they were showing at 2 a.m when nobody else was awake except the weirdos yes yes (laughs) we are the weirdos mister ah thank god yeah okay well have we raved about this song long enough (laughs) i I, we could probably go a while man i bet we could rave about this song for six minutes and 18 seconds if we really wanted to i bet we could go longer but we won't. Next up at track seven, this is one most of you probably know very well if you're into this band. This is Mountain Song.
this is the one that when when you see them in concert and when people hear that opening bass line, the crowd goes fucking nuts. I'll take your word for it since I've never seen them, but Oh, they're again, they're, they're great live. I just listened to this album in the last two weeks, so I think maybe it wouldn't have been for me until now. Yeah. Well, hey, you wanted me to pull you out of your comfort zone, so here we are. And I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did. Thank you. I'm glad I did, too. So this was actually the first song that the band ever wrote together, uh, even prior to them being called Jane's Addiction. So this was originally recorded in 86, and the original version is in some really obscure film with John Cryer called Dudes, which I've never heard of. And then they re-recorded this for the album in 88. In regards to this song specifically, Perry Farrell told Eric that either he was a genius because he kept playing the same bass notes over and over, or he didn't know how to play at all, and Perry wasn't sure which. <laughs> I think Eric answers that question on this album very well. Yeah, I think so. There is a music video for this, but it was banned by MTV because boobs. And Perry Farrell's genitals. Yes. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, okay. Actually, it was right. he, he and Casey's genitals. Yeah. Casey and his genitals. There were there were a lot of, it was a genitalia-rama is what it was, yeah. And Perry could not keep it in his pants. He was pretty well known for whipping it out during performances. There was one show that he came out where he was basically wearing a pair of women's nylons with nothing underneath. Exhibitionist. That's the word I'm looking for. Must have looked like a snail trapped in a net. <laughs> I got I need a minute. Why? <laughs> I don't know. It just popped into my head. Like the staple of marshmallow, man. I don't know. It looked like a snail in a net. I don't know. All right, well, it's kind of hard to follow. It's hard to follow. Oh, God, it's Dr. Excuse Quinn me. Medicine Woman on and over again. Excuse me. If I, if I keel over and die during this episode, you guys will know what happened. We've got recorded evidence. That is staying in the episode. <laughs> so I have absolutely no fucking idea what this song is supposed to be about. You are not alone in that boat. You are not alone. <laughs> Despite the title, there's only two uses of the word mountain in the song. The opening lyric, coming down the mountain, and then the second verse starts, I was coming down the mountain. And in both cases, we're not really sure what he was coming down the mountain for, even though he tells us. Cashing out. Or was it cashing out, cashing in? Cashing in. Cashing in. So, money. He's coming down for money. 62.5% to be exact. Okay, but who's the child that had pin eyes? And what are pin eyes? Well, we talked about that, didn't we? I mean, isn't that like when your pupils are so constricted, they're like pinpoints? I'm 54. You can't expect me to remember everything. Yeah, there's there's a lot of cashing in going on in this song, but yeah, this one, I, I either I'm completely obtuse or... I've never had the right drugs to understand what this song is about. It's one of those two things, I'm guessing. You know, something that you had said to me, 
that I, I think just really sums this up is is it's really it's it's not the lyrics it's it's the music oh yeah you know? the my favorite part of the song is the last 45 seconds where it's just the oh oh woes over and over again that is the part that just really seems to rock out harder than the rest of the song to me yeah oh and and i mean this really showcases dave's guitar too i mean just really he fucking shreds man he is a fucking virtuoso on guitar and it's no wonder that so many other bands had tried to get him. It's no wonder that in 91, after Izzy left Guns N' Roses, that Axel was trying to get Dave Navarro to play for Guns N' Roses. It's no wonder that the Red Hot Chili Peppers snagged him for a few years. You know, I mean, he is just a fucking guitar virtuoso. Yeah, this song is complete and utter power all the way down the line. I love the power behind this song. Now, this one I'd heard, of course. <laughs> this one I'd heard before, yeah. Even just the name Mountain Song, I mean, God, nothing is more evocative of strength and power than a mountain, right? Which he also makes a reference to a mountain, I believe, in, in Had a Dad, where he makes a reference to a mountain. Well, I spoke to the mountain, I listened to the sea, both told me that the fountain was the best that you can be. Right. Yeah. So next up is kind of a departure for this album, a little bit different than the other songs. This is called Idiot's Rule. Now, you know right off the bat why I love this song. I do, but I want to hear you say it. Horns, horns, horns. I love a good horn section. And yeah, that that really makes this song stand out. Again, not so sure about this one lyrically, but oh my God, the, the horn section and the music again just drives this song. Well, I think I surprised you when I told you who was on the horn section, didn't I? I had completely forgotten about that, even though I'd read it in the liner notes, but okay. I allow you the reveal. Okay. Well, we have Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers on trumpet, and on saxophone, Angelo Moore, and on trombone, Christopher Dowd. Angelo and Christopher were from Fishbone, so we've got a few guest musicians on this song. That tells you why it's so good, too. You know, and that's funny because uh, I'll be honest, the horns don't really do anything for me on this one. I come from the 70s. There were horns everywhere. I come from the 70s, too. Raised on Chicago in Chicago, babe. Then you should love the horns. Of course, you've got a lot. Yeah. There's there's not a lot of funk in Chicago horns, so. No, nah, that's true. That's yeah. true. Yeah. So the lyrics on this one, at some points, 
you know, it's like, oh, I get what he's saying. And then other points, come on, kiss you, motherfucker, fucking suck and take it. <laughs> Not exactly Shakespeare. No Shakespeare I've read. <laughs> you know that man you hate, you look more like him every day. I like that line. That I understand. It's like, oh my God, I'm getting old. I'm turning into my father. I'm turning into my yeah. father. I'm turning into my father. Well, I had a dad, but I just, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. I, I got to lie about a law, idiots. Okay. What, what law is this? I don't know. What, what, what? I'm just confused again. But there's horns, so I don't care. <laughs> You're just distracted by the horns, huh? Shiny things. Yep. Every time, especially knowing those guys from Fishbone are there. Fishbone rocks. God. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, to me, that's just another fun song, you know? And again, having seen them live, this is one, you know, the crowd all really gets into, you know, it's it's a good energy, good vibe. So. I guess the idiots could be anybody you wanted them to be. There you go. Whoever your particular idiot is, just plug them into the song. Yeah. How long have you got? Uh, Three minutes, according to this. <laughs> All right. Do you want to take the next one? Well, it's my turn, so absolutely. Okay. This is the one I think if if you know maybe two Jane's Addiction songs, if you know one, it's probably been caught stealing. But if you know two, this is probably the other one. Track nine is Jane Says. Probably of all the songs on the album, I think maybe this is where the Led Zeppelin comparison I think is most apt. And again, they don't sound like Led Zeppelin, as you were saying. I think it's more the the strength of the instrumentation with the the guitars specifically. It's, it does have kind of a Zeppelin esque vibe to it. But I don't think that that's really necessarily doing the band justice. So when I when I'm saying that they were compared to um, to Led Zeppelin, in the fact that they were so groundbreaking and so ahead of their time that they went on to influence, you know, a whole generation of musicians after them, and arguably maybe they're even more important for the influence they had on other people rather than their own music. I think it's a fair comparison here because I think one of the things people forget about Led Zeppelin in getting caught up in Black Dog and Rock and Roll and Whole Lot of Love is that a lot of Zeppelin's work was very acoustic and slower than most of the stuff that you hear on the radio suggests. And that's why I think it's a perfect comparison here for the acoustic guitar that Dave is doing and 
the lighter tone and the steel drums with the world music influence in there is just beautiful. I love that they re-recorded this with the steel drums and didn't keep the bongo version instead. The steel drums are a nice touch, yeah. I don't think I've heard the bongo version. I believe the bongo version is on the Triple X self-titled. Gotcha. A live version. Okay. Gotcha. So this is probably as good a place as any to talk about how they got the name Jane's Addiction. I can't think of Jane's last name. It rhymes with painter. What is it? Bainter with a B. Bainter. Bainter. Okay, I knew it rhymed with painter. So Perry had a roommate named Jane Bainter, who was, well, by all accounts, a drug addict. But she was a nice drug addict. He really liked her a lot in, in a platonic way, I suppose. I would guess so if he let her live with him, which if I remember correctly, they were roommates. Yeah, they were. Although there were a lot of roommates coming and going at that time. So it, it almost kind of became like a, a commune type situation at one point with this, this bunch. But the band Jane's Addiction was named after her. And this song is ostensibly about her, although she claims that some of it is not true. Sergio is apparently Jane's Argentinian drug dealer. And, you know, a lot of the song is about drug addiction. I'm going to kick tomorrow. You know, tomorrow I'm going to get clean and sober. But it never really comes, right? But it finally did, at least for her. I, I read the same interview you read with her. Now, the one thing I found interesting is in the interview, she said that she never sold her body for money. I read that. I don't really see anywhere in this song where he actually intimates that she did so. The closest is, I've never been in love. No, I don't know what it is. She only knows if someone wants her. I want them if they want me. But I don't get that as a, a prostitution. It's commerce, yeah. 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 But I, apparently that whole thing about, have you seen my wig around? That was one of her things that she really had a thing for crazy wigs. I couldn't, I couldn't find anything in the, the reference to St. Andrew, but I'm going to assume it's since it's so benign, it's as true as anything else in this song. All right. Anything else on Jane says? Nope. Think I'm good. Now let's get, let's get the most important track on the album now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I said before that Perry kind of, besides being the, the lyricist, the vocalist, he was really kind of the ringmaster of the circus or lounge singer kind of crooner vibe. And I think that that comes through in this next song, which is a very short song. It's called Thank You, Boy. of a cute little throwaway 
end to the album, yeah? I like this. It reminds me of, I don't know if you've ever actually listened to it, but on the end of Stone Temple Pilots' second album, there's this very loungy bonus cut that's absolutely hilarious. Yes. This reminds me a lot of that. I like this. I'm sure Jane's was a huge influence on STP. I'm sure they were. Yeah, this, like you said, Perry's a showman. Yeah. And this this is a showman thing, standing up in front of you. Know, Here, here's the band. Give them a hand. Thank you, guys. You, I love that. And I guess they play that piece occasionally when Perry's doing something off stage, and they will play that piece in between songs in concert. Okay. And now I hadn't encountered that, but that's cool. I love that we've already talked about this song longer than it is. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> It's kind of like doing the uh, the flute interlude on Big Thing. I think it was a similar situation. This is not as fluty. Not as fluty, no. But it is very loungy. It is. All right, and then next we have your favorite song. Oh, and I'm so glad I'm the one who gets to introduce it. This is by design. Normally, normally... Thank you, boys, if you bought the LP, was the last track on there. But if you were one of those cassette or CD buyers back in the day, you got a bonus track. And that bonus track, track 11, is called Pigs in Zen. So I just want to read the first word here in my notes about this song is three letters, all written in capital letters, and it says, ugh. So this was actually kind of born of an uh, of a jam session, I guess, according to Eric Avery. There was a, just like an impromptu jam session. Eric started playing like a disco bass line, and somehow that eventually evolved into what became Pigs in Zen. Now, there's two different ways that this has been written was it only the live chains addiction the live omitted the apostrophe i believe no i think it was the other one i think it was this one omitted the apostrophe oh, i've only I've got, got it, it sitting right here in front of me like a jackass do you really do you really yeah we got an yeah. apostrophe right here really yep well i mean that changes the meaning doesn't it you know is it one pig is it many pigs they really only mention one pig in the song. They really do, yeah. They're talking about the pig. And it's not really a very flattering song. The pig. No. Yeah. Uh. So, I... <laughs> the pig. You know, I know this is kind of one of Jane's signature songs. You know, I think all the fans, you mentioned Pigs and Zen, they know what you're talking about. But 
this feels like a throwaway to me. This feels like it. Uh, it's. I think it's Perry trying deliberately to be shocking. And I think that he does better when he's not trying to be so in your face about it, you know? How can you dare to be shocking and call your album nothing shocking? I don't, now, I will say, once again, musically, this song is absolutely solid. It does rock. There's no question about that. There's good musical stuff going on here. But yeah, these 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 words, man. This is the song for me that tells me there's no way this son of a bitch deserves 62.5% of the credits on this album. I would have been so mad if I was Eric Avery or Dave Navarro. Like, are you kidding me? You want 62.5%? You're coming to the table with piggy shit and you want 62.5%? Get the hell out of here. Oh my God. Yes. Maybe if this song had been properly incorporated into the album somewhere else, and not come after Thank You Boys, which is so clearly the end of the album, maybe it wouldn't have seemed as much like a throwaway as it does when you just throw it on after what's supposedly the final track. It's a valid point, I suppose. It just doesn't seem as developed as the other songs, you know? It seems a little underbaked. I concur. Yeah. So anyway, that brings us to the end of Nothing Shocking, and... Arguably, uh, this album is, I think it's important, not so much for the music, although the music is really fucking awesome, but I think because of the influence that this would have on other bands that were to come, I found a quote from a guy named Paul V, who used to work for Warner Brothers Records, and he said, Jane's Addiction never really got their due is the impetus for alternative music coming to the mainstream. Perry Farrell, Jane's Addiction, and Lollapalooza finally found a key that unlocked that door and cracked it open a hair, and Kurt Cobain stuck his boot through it. He couldn't have without Jane's Addiction and Lollapalooza. Who knows what it would have taken for that music to finally break through without them. There would not have been an alternative music scene. I realize the irony of saying mainstream and alternative in the same sentence, because alternative did become mainstream. But that I don't think would have happened without without Jane's Addiction's influence. I think they really did. With this kind of fusion of rock and and metal and just like all these different influences coming together. I also know that it was really challenging for their record label to try and market this. And I think for a while Warners was actually trying to market this as heavy metal. And I do know a lot of metal heads that did like it, but this is definitely not heavy metal, so but I can see the crossover appeal, especially with the L.A. scene and them being part of the L.A. scene. Right. Easy crossover appeal. Right. I think I found something here that perfectly sums up this episode, too. It's a it's a wonderful quote I found from Jeanette Napolitano of Concrete Blonde, where she says, Perry Farrell looks like an insect. Perry Farrell sings like an insect. Is Perry Farrell an insect? Just wondering. All right, now I'm going to ask you what's your favorite track on the album. It is Summertime Rolls. There's not even a question about that. It is just a thing of beauty. It is the centerpiece of the album to me. And I remember when they brought the producer in to do this album, he picked the songs and they were like, we're going to rehearse them in this order. You're going to record them in this order. And this thing is just gorgeous beyond words. I'm sure you've heard me say that a few times during the course of the show, but absolutely Summertime Rolls. What about you? 
I gotta go with Ted. Just admit it. By that baseline, just gets me. Summertime rolls is a close second for sure because I have there's an emotional connection to that song. So, so um, two weeks. You have not told me yet what our topic is going to be. I am really curious to hear what we're going to be recording. I think we're moving into 1989. Now, I know in the past this show has done a music of 19-whatever as kind of a compilation show, but there are so many landmark important albums that came out in 1989. We're just going to jump right over that and we're going to move right into a lot of those albums that meant so much to the alternative scene. If my predecessor thought Nirvana put alternative on the map, you're going to hear the people who really drew the map in the first place. Nice. So next week, we're going to start into 1989 with New Order's Technique. Hot damn! Love it. I can't wait. I'm excited. I think you guys are going to enjoy that, especially if I know a lot of New Order fans did not kinder to that album the way they did some of the others. And you've made a mistake if you're one of those people. We're we're going to we're going to bring you to our side. We'll bring you to the technique nice. side. Nice. And of course, we're not going to be able to talk about that without at least mentioning Chicago House Music. Cool. Well, I guess uh, we'll be back in two weeks with Technique. Goodbye for me. And goodbye for me. And until next time, everyone, remember, don't drop acid, kids. Take it past fail. <laughs> <laughs>